Okay, welcome along everyone. It's fabulous to have you all back for episode three of our The Inner Circle podcast series called Leading a Restorative School. Really hope you enjoyed episode two where we took a dance up and down that continuum, that restorative continuum through from formal to informal or informal to formal as the case may be, as it certainly was the case in episode two. We found five stations on that continuum. Today, what we're going to do is to zero in on one of them. That's the fourth station, and that's all around circles. Uh, The first thing I'm going to do when it comes to restorative circles is kind of try to make the case for them. I'm going to put together uh, an argument for moving away from a model of instruction. And to be really honest, that's where restorative practices has its enormous power is when we allow those principles of working restoratively to reach our instructional model. And what I'm going to put for you, put together for you today is an argument for why we should move away from an instructional model that isn't serving us and isn't living out those restorative principles and across to a model that does. And chiefly, that's around putting everyone together in a circle. Circles are wonderful. Circles are continuous. Circles are inclusive. Circles are absent of power. And what they've done for me is pretty simple. They've allowed me in my teaching to become more effective. I certainly feel that more gets done. I certainly feel that I'm able to encourage my students to learn and to think more deeply. And I also feel that I become less stressed. I think that the challenge for most educators and the thing that they take home with them as a stressor is a gap between their practice and their principles. And what this allows us to do is to close that gap, close that gap. It allows us to act and to practice in accordance with what we believe about working with young people. It's massive, it's powerful, and it is outrageously simple. And if you as a leader can start to get traction with that, with all of the people in your school, you're going to do some pretty incredible stuff. So let's get to work on restorative, restorative circles as we move into this podcast. Okay, so let's get to work on taking our first steps along that quest to become a truly restorative school and understanding that your role in this, in being a leader of the implementation of circles is thoroughly critical to that quest. Uh, Let me start this segment of the podcast by perhaps kicking in with story. Um, There's a wonderful scene in the movie Dodgeball uh, where there's the introduction of a character, a a cruel and crotchety figure called Patches O'Houlihan who becomes the team from Average Joe's Gym, which is a a terrible and financially failing gym uh, looking to win a dodgeball tournament to just to continue to survive. Um, there's an introduction of this character called Patches and he's horrible. And so in the first training session with his team, um, what Patch does is reaches into a bag and pulls out a wrench and he hurls it at one of the team members and it strikes him forcefully in the face. Uh, of course, that team member plummets to the ground moaning in agony um it sounds awful doesn't it but it's actually very very funny patches then proudly announces that here's the here's his quote if you can dodge a wrench then you can dodge a ball and so the wrench throwing drill commences now what i would like to do to commence this podcast is throw some wrenches at you and what my contention is that if you can dodge them, if you can handle the truth as was espoused in another Hollywood block, blockbuster, then I reckon you're actually really well equipped to move on to the real thing because you will have discovered the reason that you need to move towards a different instructional model. The power of working restoratively 
comes into your hands and comes into the culture of your school when you allow restorative thinking and principles to reach that instructional model. So if I may, here's my first wrench. The way that you have been taught to teach and indeed the way that you have been conditioned to believe you must teach others to teach is broken. The notion that a teacher positioned for power at the front of a room in an authoritarian position can do his or her best work by forcing students to learn is fundamentally flawed, especially for a contemporary classroom. Standing in that position is possibly the least student-centred thing you could choose to do. And yet here we all are, en masse, assuming positions of power in classrooms and hoping that we can be collaborative. Everything about that context, everything about that architecture screams competition and power. And yet we have been loath en masse to make that chief and fundamental move. So in this podcast, we're going to look at the use of restorative circles and I'm going to contend to you that these can become the foundation of your instructional model. Um, that sounds daunting, but try to fear not, if you may. Circles are not some magical construct that require years and years of training just to comprehend it or to let alone implement it. Circles work for one reason and for one reason only. And it's because of the absence of a powerful position. When you choose to teach predominantly through circles, you choose to surrender your power over the students and you choose to work with them rather than against them. And that's an incredibly exciting thing to do. It can be daunting for people too, though. And you leading your people into surrender of their attachment to an instructional model that says that I must take a powerful position can be really tricky to do. But it's important. So in this podcast, what I'm asking you to comprehend is that it might be useful for you just in immersing yourself in this, to suspend your own attachment to any architectural models that have shackled your practice to this point in your career. Uh, I'm going to ask that you surrender your faith in these models and just, just for maybe 45 minutes or so entertain that there could actually be a better way for you, uh, for your teachers, for your staff and for your students. And that it's possible that that way could be much, much more effective and productive it actually could be a lot easier too. Um, I'm going to throw a wrench now. I'm actually, why not throw two wrenches? I'm going to throw a wrench in the direction of our primary teachers and a, and a wrench in the direction of our secondary teachers in two different ways because both sets en masse are failing our students in this regard. Primary teachers, I want to throw this wrench at you. Stop putting your students in the, on the floor in clumps. As I mentioned before, that the reason that circles work is just because of the absence of power. But there are special, there are more powerful positions in the clump on the floor than other positions. Uh, for instance, if you were just to contemplate that for a moment, where do the students in the clump sit who most want to answer a question? Yeah, that's right. They're front and centre, aren't they? And where do the students sit who most need to answer a question? Yes, you're right. They're at the rear or at the edges. Uh, in a clump, students use their positions to play the odds. So what they do is that students already know that achieving well in their well, achieving well use. Yeah, sorry, but, but students already achieving well, they use their position to increase the likelihood of being able to show their capabilities off. So what they do is position themselves so that they can show off those capabilities. And students who know that they're not achieving well, 
position themselves so that they will not have to show off their incapabilities. That's not great for a classroom that has any sort of intention around equity or equality. Um, so that might be easy to listen to for uh, secondary teachers. You think, yeah, yes, we don't do that. We don't put our students in clumps. Uh, you make an equally um, poor decision, and that is you sit them fundamentally in rows. Um, I had a, a fabulous teacher who I work with who's reflective, and we're going to talk a lot about the purpose of working restoratively um, in the next webinar, which is going to be around operating domains, about the importance of being reflective. And this is, Marilyn is a particularly reflective practitioner. Uh, she walked into a staff room one day when I was there and said, geez, no one be a battle today. And we have an agreement, Marilyn and I, that we fight fair. So, um, but we fight <laughs> and I couldn't help myself. So I said, well, they would be, wouldn't they? And she said, oh, what's that supposed to mean? We're, we're going to fight, aren't we? Yeah, yep, yeah, okay. And um, so she sort of figuratively pulled up a, a, a little donger and went ding, ding, and the fight began. And, um, and she said, I could throw the first punch. So I said, look at your classroom architecture. It's actually set up like a battlefield. There are rows of soldiers, you know, bedraggled and beaten down by years of tyranny, come face to face with the great authoritarian ruler. Finally, emboldened by numbers and hormones, they're presented with an opportunity to behead the queen and they take it. They are assembled, ready for war. And I said, where are the infantry? Where are the troops who are the most dispensable, the frontline pawns in this big war game? And she always said, oh, I think they're at the front. And I said, yep, of course they are. And where are the ones with the big guns? Where are the troops with the heavy artillery that maximise damage against the enemy? Oh, they're at the back. And Marilyn said, oh, my goodness, they actually do that. And she actually went on to comment an observation of hers where she said the kids in the front actually look back at the kids in the back row as though they're saying to them, come on, archers, fire. Uh, education should not be a battle where there's a winner or a loser, where there's a conqueror or a conquered. Our game in education is to get ourselves to the point where we are doing the work together. In terms of the operating domains, as I mentioned before, that means doing education with each other. And that's the ambition of working together in circles. Uh, in the next part of the webinar, what I'd like to do is put together for you five principles that you will need to lead. These are principles that you will need to convince the people in your school to believe in, in order for circles to be effective for them. They're certainly principles that you can get off the ground if you take a, go about it tactically the right way. Okay, let's get our hands dirty with those five principles for successful restorative circles. Principle number one, they have to serve your learning program. So I have come to a belief that there's a certain question that I should not answer when I'm in schools about circles. And the question I shouldn't answer is this. Hey, Adam, how do I fit circles into my lesson when I've got so much content that I need to get through? Now, I understand the question, but I don't. I choose not to answer it because it's the wrong question. You know, sometimes you just shouldn't answer the wrong question. Um, like, does my bum look big in these jeans? I, I think that there's, a, there's certain questions that we should avoid at all costs. And for me, this is one of them. Um, my ambition is to get the staff members in your school to the point where they will instead say something like, Adam, I wouldn't even think of tackling all this content without a circle or three to help me get through it. 
Circles need to make the ambition of teaching and learning easier. Anybody in your school who feels that circles, a circle is something that they have to do because they're trapped in a restorative school uh, should not be running a circle. They haven't found yet a purpose for that circle. Uh, circles that are implemented with just a little bit of artistry, just a little bit of creativity, are an instructional model that will allow people to get more done and will allow them to live out their deepest intentions for working with young people. They deserve the gift of circles rather than to have circles handed to them as some sort of compliance that they need to get to. As a leader, what this means for you is that you always need to emphasise for people how awesome print circles are in terms of them being able to get more done and to feel better. So it's an important act of celebration that as a leader you need to bring to life in your school. Principle number two is to remember when it comes to circles, less really is more. So what I mean by that is that the best circles genuinely are short and there's a lot of them. So I personally don't believe that anybody should comply with a certain length of circle. In fact, what I think they should do is look to set personal bests. I think they should make a game of it. I think they look to, should look to see how quickly their students can get through a successful circle and then straight away get back into group or individual productivity. Short, sharp and purposeful circles are critical in terms of your students seeing and coming along with you on this pedagogical transformation. Um, and it's also really important in terms of building your own motivation as a teacher is to understand that, you know, you don't have to you know, dedicate 15 minutes to a circle. If you can get the job done in 90 seconds and the kids are back to successfully learning, that's a good result. Do that again. And what I think people will find is that the smaller that the circles can become, they become um, easier to implement. I think that teachers, we forget sometimes, are human beings. And human beings are hardwired to pick the shortest possible route with the least effort required to succeed. Long, boring and arduous circles will deprive them of that motivation. If you can model for your teachers, if you can encourage and praise within your teachers, the ones that get it done really, really quickly, I think you'll find it easier to get traction with them. Now, principle three for successful circles is to remember that engagement is absolutely everything. Circles are there because we believe they will engage students for a longer period of time. And yet, I think that the way that circles are implemented in many schools actually does the opposite. So first of all, let me explain what I mean by engagement. For me, engagement is a very simple, I like simple definitions. So for me, engagement fits that criteria in that it's the definition of engagement is a really simple one. I think that it's just young people listening, speaking, thinking or doing. Um, and thereby, what we know about engagement is that it has an arch enemy. So the opposite of listening, speaking, thinking or doing is encouraged any time we ask students to do one thing, and that's wait. If we encourage young people to wait, for instance, if we were to rely on a talking stick in a circle, which is often the case in Australia, that talking stick goes around the circle and while one student is holding that stick, they are fully engaged. Yet when they hand that stick over, they completely disengage. And while others are waiting for that student to deliver a 15-minute TED Talk about their weekend, while they are waiting for that student to finish their TED Talk, they are disengaged, make no doubt about it. Your ambition is to get as many students as you possibly can listening, speaking, thinking or doing. 
And that means that if, for instance, I'm going to talk at the end of this podcast today about my special sources, the little tips, the little tricks that can really make circles click. And one of them I call two word limit. So this is how I make sure that I don't have long, disastrous, soul destroying circles. What I do is that if, if anybody needs to say more than two words, um, we are not going all the way around the circle. We turn and talk. Pretty simple. Um, it's, and this taps into a really key idea in, that in schools that somehow we've accepted to be a truth that basically isn't. Somehow we have positioned ourselves through our authority in classrooms as teachers to believe that all of the communication must flow through us, else we wouldn't know that it happened. Um, well, I'm going to put a bit more trust in our students around that and a bit more trust in your ability as professionals to create an environment where young people do engage by just saying that, you know what, if it's more, that, you know what, I just fundamentally believe that it's more important for a young person to communicate than it is that we hear it. For assessment purposes, sure. If it's not something you're directly assessing at that point, I just want their head and their hands immersed in the concept that we're talking about. Because then I believe they're more likely to success when they work to, to be successful when they work individually. And then, lo and behold, my assessment becomes easier. So those first three points are critical. The idea of that learning that circles must serve your learning program the notion that less that small circles run more often work better work more effectively really quick short sharp and then thirdly that they are used to engage your students listening speaking thinking or doing for the highest possible length of time highest possible percentage of time I'm often referring to a story about a, a class that I was asked to teach at a at a school and it was a tough day. It was you know, about 38 degrees and they decided to give me the toughest class in the school in the last session of the day. They decided to let me know that it was a double class, 51 students, and that we would be, they would like to see how I would do learning circles. I'll talk a little more about them towards the end of the podcast today. Um, and they asked me to show them how we how would do learning circles with this class, the most challenging class in the school, uh, to introduce adjectives. Thank you for that. I, I really appreciated it. And the distinct feeling that I was being set up <laughs> crept across me. Um, and I remember pulling the students together and asking them to stand in a circle as they came in sweaty and smelly from lunchtime. And I just said, could you stand strongly in a circle, please, everyone? And they did. Um, which was great, mostly, you know, you, you got, got most of them. I said, today we're going to talk about adjectives. Mindful as I am here now, what do you think the chances are of me being able to group them together in a typical primary school clump or even sitting them in rows, secondary style? These students are all on the verge of going to do that and talking to them for 15 minutes about adjective after the adjectives after they've been running, outside, running around outside in 38 degrees. My chances are zero. So I just said to them, could you turn and talk to the person next to you about, um, about adjectives? What are they and what do they do? And they had a bit of a chat. I called them back to the circle and I got some of their answers. There were some good ones. And then I sent them back to their tables with a partner to, um, to write on a piece of A3 paper as many adjectives as they could think of. And I told them I would give them a one-minute warning um, for when they needed to swap from pen to highlighter, where they would have a one-minute argument with their partner about what the best adjectives were, and I need them to settle that argument in one minute and come back to the table with their five coolest adjectives. 
And mostly they did it. And I got to transition at this point when I went back to their tables. I got to transition between my two default modes of practicing. Now I've got other modes and other, you know, other tools that I draw on when I'm in the classroom, but I have two pretty much default modes. Uh, mode one is when I'm in instruction and my default for instruction is a circle. I just love it because I think that I can maximize engagement there. And then secondly, what I'm looking to do is my second mode is I move into what I call blowfly mode, where I am just sort of randomly buzzing around the classroom, delivering effective statements, selling people that I'm impressed and disappointed as regularly as I possibly can. And, um, and just, you know, making the most of that opportunity. I let the students know that there would be a signal for when the next circle would start, which was after a brief conversation with a student about Star Wars, that I would make the Chewbacca sound. Um, it's the best I can do for you under the circumstances, I'm afraid. And I made the noise. The students looked at me strangely, but they did, uh, upon second encouragement, come back to the circle. And I built upon it at that point. I had them identify other adjectives. We discussed it. We turned and talked. And the circle went for about two or three minutes before I sent them back to complete the next activity. I then made the Chewbacca noise. They came back to the circle and we built upon it again. After about three or four circles, a teacher in the, in the room, a graduate teacher, this was a, a co-teaching environment with a, a leading teacher working with a grad. And the, the grad teacher walked up next to me and she said, okay, I, I get this now. I said, okay, what do you get? And she said, I get why you do this. I said, why do you think I do this? And she says, you just do this because it's easier, don't you? And I think she had me. And that's one of my proudest moments of modelling circles for other people. And I think from a leadership point of view, it's a powerful story in terms of the importance of being able to demonstrate that you are prepared to give these circles a go yourself. If you want people to use circles, they've got to see you use circles. And I think that when they're able to discover that the truth about circles is it's going to make their job easier is that there's currency in that for them. They're going to get a payoff from stepping into this that's above complying with your ambitions for the school. It's really important because now we've got personal and professional payoff feeding into each other. Um, yep, she got me. Because what I think happens when you work in a circle that way is that we don't have the students slip into low engagement. Um, as students, as you know, when certain students are gone, it's really, really hard to get them back. So what we wanna do is to have short, sharp periods of circle and success at the back of the tables, circle, success back in a group. We just want to keep that going because then students don't get the opportunity to drift too far into low engagement. Um, and that does, that does make my life easier. Principle four about working successfully with circles is that the position is everything. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, uh, circles work for really only one reason, and that is, that, the abs is, that is the absence of a powerful position. And yet sometimes we're tempted to take a powerful position. Primary school teachers are tempted to sit on a chair while their students sit on the floor because it's uncomfortable to be there. Uh, sometimes we position ourselves in a special spot, even in a standing circle. I've seen a teacher you know, try to put themselves in the middle of the circle. Um, and I would want to discourage you to do that. The more that you can be in those uncomfortable positions, which sometimes means your knees and groins will um, let you know that the circle has gone too long, which can actually be useful to me. Um, the more that you can participate as an equal in those circles with the students, the more you will posi be positioned as an authoritative rather than an authoritarian 
leader in that classroom. For teachers, sometimes the fear they've got about stepping into an architecture without a powerful position is they feel they lose all their authority. And what you as a leader need to point out is that they don't, but they do change their authority. And if you were to ask most teachers, do you want to be an authoritarian or an authoritative teacher? They'll choose the latter. And it's really important that we go, right, let's strategize to be able to help you to get to that point. And the final point of the final principle of working successfully with circles is to be both scheduled and flexible. I often say it's a little bit like the old TV show. Some of you may not be familiar with this one, The Odd Couple, where Felix, who's very scheduled and um, organised, he knows that there are certain things that are best to be scheduled and organised. And for me, that's my check-in and my check-out circles. I want you to find time as a classroom teacher to make sure that you check in with your students because they want to know that you want to know what's going on with them. It's also fabulous to be able to have uh, an opportunity to check in on how your class is going to be able to make adjustments. It's worthwhile to the teacher to, to bother to schedule that time. And I want you to schedule checkout circles. We're going to talk about more about those circle types in just a minute. But I want you to be really flexible around the other circle types, which are preparation circles, response circles, and learning circles. I want you to be the person who trusts your teachers to be able to choose when using those circles will be useful to them. And I think that if we can trust our teachers' professionalism to choose pedagogies that are fit for purpose, then we empower them. Um, I certainly trust you to work diligently and creatively to the very edges of what circles can do in your school. And I want you to work diligently to trust your teachers to work creatively to the edges of their circles so that learning, engagement and relationships can become active within their school. Hey, let's take a little break there. I'm just going to give you a moment of background music. Maybe you've got some notes to write down or some uh, some points around those processes to uh, those principles to process for just a moment. And uh, maybe while you're doing that, I'll give you a little reminder about what the next podcast episode is going to be all about. After that, we're going to get into the five types of learning circles. Okay, let's finish light on the end of a big topic around allowing restorative practices to impact your instructional model. Let's finish light with some tips some tricks some tiny little things you can do that I love to call my special source. All right, nine special sources that can make your circles fly. Number one, let's go, let's go, let's go. Number one is called a two-word limit. So what I want you to do, as I mentioned before, is if you're going to go all the way around a circle, I want you to limit it to two words. Nobody speaks more than two words if we're going all the way around. It'll make your circles short, nimble, and easy to implement. Number two is to provide think time. So what I want you to do when your students are in a circle, if you're going to ask them a curly question, is to say, put your head down, look at the floor, think hard, I'll give you 10 seconds. Think hard because you could be first. And in fact, that is special source number three. The sentence, you could be first. If you can let your students know that there is no special spot, such as sitting on your right, that will allow you to answer the question first, or sitting on your left, which will guarantee that you'll be last, that you're going to go randomly all around the circle. It's a great way to maximise engagement, specifically in the top that you're looking to talk because, hey, you could be first. Special source number four is to turn and talk. 
So what I want you to do, as I mentioned before, is if you need feel the need to go all the way around the circle, it's a two word limit. If you don't, it's a turn and talk opportunity. And if you allow the students to turn and talk, there's a trust thing involved here that says that I'm actually okay with trusting that my students will stay on topic. Now, of course, not all of them will, but the truth is about asking a student, a group of students a question and then waiting to see who puts their hand up is that quite a percentage of them are probably not thinking about what they're, what, what that question was anyway they're just playing the odds they won't be the one chosen by not putting their hand up turn and talk gives you a higher probability that students are going to actually immerse themselves in the content you're providing them with special source number five i've got to take a breath special source number five is that nobody drowns if you have five people in a line and you ask them to turn and talk one and two will talk to each other four and five will turn to we talk to each other and number three will drown in a sea of loneliness we don't allow loneliness in a restorative school so what we do is we keep a mantra going in our classrooms that says that nobody drowns and if you see somebody like drowning in a sea of loneliness when you've been asked to turn and talk you simply have to grab them by the wrist and pull them into your lifeboat the three of you can talk the truth is that anytime you're asking two students to talk it might as well be three so that's not a big deal anyway special source number six is to avoid word contagion so what I mean by that is to not pay attention to words that become contagious in a classroom, particularly in your check-in circles, just because they're a little bit negative or cool to say. Uh, for instance, you might have a check-in circle where the word tired <laughs> is my favourite contagious word, where all of a sudden six students in a row are saying the word tired. I want to encourage you strongly not to feed that beast by sort of cracking it with the sixth student and saying, come on, you need to think of a different word to that. What I want you to do instead is to put your energy into rewarding the student who says curious. Hey, what are you curious about? Right, yeah, yeah, good one. I'm, that's a great word. Thanks so much for that. So I want you to not use those, use your circle to tell a student off. I'm not saying that if they interact the wrong way in a circle that you can't have an effective interaction with them afterwards. In fact, I'm saying that you should. What I am saying is that when you spot a little bit of word contagion going on, strategy one is to is to reward the student who breaks the chain on that on that on that contagion. Uh, next bit of special source number seven is to is to avoid also deliberate deliberate negativity. So you'll get students who, for instance, will from time to time arrive in a bad mood, arrive arrive with a grudge against you, and you might ask them. So, you know, Matthew, what do you think about uh, quadratic equations? You go, I think they're stupid, like you. Now, you can try to use a circle to try and win, but the truth is that circles are not about competition. Circles are about collaboration. So my advice to you would be saying, I'm disappointed with that answer. I'll try someone else. Again, later on, you might try to have a bit of a chat with that student using an effective interaction. But in a circle, I'm not rewarding negativity. I'm putting my energy into rewarding the positivity and the, and the positive contribution of other students. Special source number eight is to stand strong. I love doing standing circles, mainly because they're just really easy to get in and out of and they don't demand quite as much space as getting students together either on chairs or sitting on floors. Don't need to change so much architecture to be able to get a standing circle done. The disadvantage of a standing circle is that there's no anchor, so students can wander a little bit sometimes. So I teach them to stand strong. And I teach them that what they need to do is to be able to stand with their feet shoulder width apart. They need to have their toes pointing to the middle of the circle. They need to have their feet flat on their floor, on the floor and their eyes on me. And that tends to provide me a good enough anchor to get maybe a minute or two of instruction done before they perhaps turn and talk. And special source number nine 
nine different special sources like a tic-tac-toe board, isn't it? Where you can just choose where you want to, uh, or the, where you want to, um, which one you want to choose today, is to know when to not use circles. Um, so what I mean by that is that circles are a particular form of architecture that I find very useful for a classroom, but not in all instances. So, for instance, if you're reading something to your students, if they're watching a screen to watch a YouTube clip uh, about, uh, you know, Romeo and Juliet, um, you're not going to put them in a circle for that because there's going to be positions where it's really hard to see that. If you were redesigning a cinema, you certainly wouldn't design it in circles. You design it in rows. You design it so that they're front-facing. Circles are awesome because they allow function to match the way that you want to work. You know, they allow function to meet form in a really meaningful kind of way. Um, and you should do that all the time. If you've got demonstrations, if you've got pictures, that if you've got work that you need them to be staring straight at on the board, demonstration types type work, then you should definitely choose architecture that works for that. And I wouldn't choose a circle in those circumstances. Great news is that for most of the circumstances that you have occur in your classroom, in a contemporary student-centred classroom, circles just work so beautifully and i hope that today's podcast has been an inspiration to you around leading that for little other reason than i think that it will allow your people to be more effective and less stressed and that will mean that you as a leader are pushing your school more confidently towards achieving its strategic objectives around teaching and learning Okay, we'll see you for the very next podcast. I really can't wait to talk to you about that one. Um, We're going to be chatting in the next podcast about the restorative operating domains. So we're going to be having a little chat about how to be firm and fair and uh, and what reflection is all about when it comes to that. Okay, I'll chat to you then. Bye for now.